Go ahead and turn in your Bible to the book of 2 John. As last year came to a close, we finished our series in 1 John, and we're going to now just finish out the letters of John. So we have 2 John and 3 John. They're both very short, and today we're going to do all of 2 John. It's only 13 verses, and uh, you can turn there as we get ready to jump in and understand what John writes in this letter of 2 John. As you look around at all of those who call themselves Christians, there are lots of different opinions amongst people, specifically lots of different opinions about Jesus, lots of different opinions about the gospel. How do you respond to that? Do you dig into your Bible and seek out the truth? Do you tend to just accept anyone that calls themselves a Christian? Do you kind of sit back and wait for others to sort it out? The letter of 2 John is written to a church that is experiencing the influence of false teachers in their community. And John is writing to emphasize the importance of truth and to tell this church what their responsibility is when they encounter these false teachers. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is this. I'm going to just kind of walk through the text and explain it in maybe five or ten minutes. And then I want to go through four observations from what John writes in this letter. Okay, so let's just kind of start by walking through the text. And here's an outline that you can follow along just to kind of keep track of things. And I'm just going to read each section and then comment on it briefly. So the book of 2 John, we'll start with verses 1 through 3. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Hopefully you can hear in there the emphasis on truth. We're going to get to that in just a minute. <clears throat> who are the people that are involved here? Well, the elder who is writing is John. And the people that he's writing to are the elect lady and her children. The elect lady is probably a church, a local church. Often the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And so it's not out of character for the church to be called the elect lady, the, the, the lady chosen by God, chosen to be his bride, and her children. So all of those who have also become believers in this church, that's who this is addressed to. <clears throat> the greeting that's given is kind of a standard greeting, except for the addition of the word truth. That's not often there, but here it's there four times in these first three verses. So John loves them in truth. So the truth is the basis for the relationship. He loves them. The truth is the basis for that relationship that they have. Not just John, but all who know the truth. This is the universal fellowship of the church, and it's based on truth. Because of the truth that abides in us, he writes, that's the spirit of truth who is in us as believers. He calls to mind Jesus, who is the truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. 
And then he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. That's kind of the standard greeting. But then he adds the truth. The relation of truth and love is the focus. So in truth and love. Now, those are themes, hopefully, that sound really familiar to you from the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John, remember, was like a circular letter. It was the kind of letter that gets sent out to lots of different churches in the region. This one is seemingly particularly to one local church. It may be the case that this one came first, and then John wrote and expanded on it for all of the churches in the region. Just because 1 John comes first and 2 John comes second doesn't mean that's actually the order in which they were written. Uh, The letters in the New Testament tend to be arranged by length, according to author. So after you have the Gospels and then Acts, which tells the history, you have the letters of Paul, and the longest letter of Paul is Romans, and then the next longest is 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians, and it, it works its way on down. And it's probably just arranged the same way here for John. Well, that's the greeting. Then verses four through six is about walking in the truth. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. (coughs) Excuse me. So notice there in verse four, that he rejoices to find them walking in the truth. So walking in the truth brings your leaders joy. When the truth is proclaimed and people respond by living according to the truth, that brings joy. And the opposite is also true. On the other hand, when the truth is proclaimed and it doesn't seem to make a difference in people's lives, that brings your leaders sorrow. Well, what is walking in the truth? He talks about walking in the truth there in verse four, and then verses five and six kind of go on to explain a little bit more. Walking in the truth equals loving one another. And walking in the truth equals walking according to God's commandments. Therefore, loving one another equals walking according to God's commandments. Tuck that thought away in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Verses 7 through 11, then, are about holding on to the truth. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So these deceivers have gone out. We saw that language in 1 John. They were people who were part of the church, but now they have gone out because there was this doctrinal disagreement, this theological 
uh, disparity that couldn't be reconciled. They were teaching something other than the truth the apostles had handed down about Jesus. And that language, by the way, that they have gone out, that's the same language that's used of Judas at the Last Supper. He went out. He appeared to be part of them, but then he went out. And it was revealed that he really hadn't ever been part of them. So to avoid being deceived, you must know and walk in the truth. <clears throat> well, that puts certain obligations on you, doesn't it? Where are you going to find the truth? Well, you find the truth in God's word and amongst God's people. And that's why it's vital that you gather together as the church with God's people and hear from his word and be in his word and have that as that solid foundation. The truth, John says here, and its rewards can be lost. He says, watch yourselves so that we may not lose what we've worked for. The gains made by the gospel can be lost if the truth is not held on to. So hold on to the truth so that the rewards are not lost. Hold on to the truth so that the next generation can build on it. And then he says, don't fellowship with those who corrupt the truth. Don't show them hospitality. It means you don't show any kind of approval. You don't support them in any way. You don't give them any help in their work. If you do, then John says, you're complicit. You're guilty of their sin, of their wickedness. And then finally, verses 12 and 13, we have this just kind of end of the letter where John writes, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. I can relate to what John says there. I'm not a big phone conversation person. I always said I would rather drive two hours to have a 15 minute face to face conversation than to spend 15 minutes on the phone. Um, he wants to come to them. He wants to see them face to face. He wants to be able to interact with them. And then he sends greetings probably from another church. This, the children of your elect sister seems to be a sister church that is sending them greetings. Well, that's kind of a basic walkthrough of the text of second John. And like I said before, there's four observations that I want to share with you this morning. Now I'll warn you, the first three are going to sound Harsh might be a little bit too strong, but they're going to sound pretty direct and confrontational. And this is the way the word of God often works. The word of God wounds, and then it brings the medicine to heal the wound. And so hopefully by the time we get to the fourth observation, that's what will happen this morning. But the first observation is this. The claims of Christianity are objectively true, and they are binding on everyone. Specifically here in 2 John, the truth is referring to the truth that's passed down by the apostles, the truth about Jesus. This is of utmost importance. This determines literally the fate of our world. And it determines the fate of every individual. You, me, and everyone that we come into contact with. But more broadly, the very concept of truth is paramount to the Christian faith. Christianity matters 
because it is true. Christianity is what we call teleological. Big fancy word that we don't use often, but it's actually a good one to know. Here's what it means. It has a telos, an end, a goal. What that means is Christianity is going somewhere. There's an appointed end to this history that we are living. History is not like you would find in Eastern cultures, cyclical. That's not true. History is not like most Western cultures would have you think, random or just the result of molecules in motion. No, Christianity says that that this world is teleological. It's going somewhere. And if you give up on the priority of objective truth, then all of the truth claims of Christianity are just a matter of opinion. And we're not going anywhere in particular, and there's no judgment to face and all of that. And Christianity is reduced to just being a crutch to help you get through. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Christianity is objectively true. And it's binding on everyone, okay? If the claims of Christianity are true, and they are, then they're true for everyone. They're binding on everyone, no matter what. It's like the law of gravity. It doesn't matter whether you think the law of gravity applies to you or not. It does. If you jump off a building, I can tell you what's going to happen. The law of gravity is not an opinion. And it does not care whether or not you think that it's real. It is real. Christianity is like that. The truth claims of Christianity are true whether you admit it or not. And they are binding on you, whether you like it or not. That's why the gospel is an announcement, not primarily an invitation. The gospel is an announcement. The gospel announces that Jesus is Lord. And that's true. Now that leaves you with a choice to make. You can either submit to him as Lord, or you can remain an enemy of his. And so, yes, there is an invitation that comes along with the gospel. But the gospel, the word gospel means good news. It's an announcement of what has happened, of what is true. Claims of Christianity are objectively true, and they are binding on everyone. Observation number two, loving one another is not contrary to upholding God's commands. Today, a lot of Christians want to take an approach that says something like this. I don't want to get caught up in all of the debates and arguments. I just want to love my neighbors and reach them with the gospel. And on one level, that's good. We shouldn't be argumentative just for the sake of argument. And so that part of that position is right. And we should love our neighbors and spread the gospel. And that love should be tangible. That's all true and good. Here's the problem. 
What does it mean to love your neighbor? Note John's argument. Look at verses 5 and 6. No, let's go 4, 5, and 6. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Let me put it to you in a form that maybe visualizes it for you. Walking in the truth equals loving your neighbor or loving one another, according to John. In these verses, we also see that walking in the truth equals walking according to God's commands. That means then that loving one another equals walking according to God's commands. According to John's definition of love, you can't love your neighbor and not uphold God's truth and God's commands. That's not love. You can't love your neighbor and pretend that their sinful lifestyle is okay. Now, you can be kind and strategic about how and when you say something, but you can't just pretend it's all okay. The word of God does not leave that option open to you. Our culture defines love as tolerance to a great extent. And our culture says that the opposite, intolerance is hateful or unloving. But our culture's definition of love is not the standard. God's definition is the standard, and we are not free to ignore that. So we must ask ourselves, what does it look like in this situation to love my neighbor? And your answer to that question must be governed by truth. Otherwise, it's not biblical love. As a culture, we are quickly moving into an environment in which Christian courage will be demanded for us to speak the truth. Now, we can certainly speak the truth in love, and that's the appropriate way to do it, especially when we're talking about personal relationships. At the same time, we need to speak the truth with clarity and power in the public square, not being afraid of what the repercussions to us might be. Think of the example of Jesus. When Jesus spoke to sinners who were mired in sin, he spoke with kindness and compassion. He spoke the truth in love. And so you see him reaching out to people that many others wouldn't reach out to and speaking in kindness rather than even judgment when he was reaching out to those people. That's one side of the coin. 
The other side of the coin is that we also, in the same Gospels, see Jesus confronting religious leaders, calling them names, whitewashed sepulchers, you're hypocrites, you're blind guides leading the blind. He was harsh because they were ones who were influencing others. So in the public arena, when he's confronting public ideas and public teaching from the religious leaders, Jesus speaks the truth with clarity and power. When he's reaching out on a personal level, he's speaking with kindness and compassion. In both arenas, he's speaking the truth. And in both cases, it is love because upholding God's commands is loving one another. In terms of public policy or law, we as Christians have to be willing to stand up for biblical law and principles. Let me give you another argument to kind of demonstrate what I mean by that. The Bible tells us that righteousness exalts the nation. Righteousness is good for the nation. When you have laws and leaders who execute justice and righteousness, the nation flourishes. That's a good thing. Okay, so righteousness is good for the nation. God's laws are righteous. Okay, and when we have the opposite of God's laws, that's unrighteous. But God's laws are righteous. Therefore, God's laws are good for the nation. God's laws exalt the nation. So loving our neighbor means advocating for God's laws. Because ultimately, that's what's good. That's what's right. Upholding God's commands is walking in love. Walking in truth and walking in love. John says the two go together and you can't tear them apart. Are we willing to do that? Loving one another is not contrary to upholding God's commands. Observation number three, when you waffle on the truth, you are guilty of promoting lies. Verses 10 and 11 in Second John, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What does it mean to not receive and not greet someone? It's talking about Christian hospitality, and you are not to offer Christian hospitality to someone who claims to be a Christian but does not uphold the truth about Jesus. Hospitality, yes. Christian hospitality, no. You don't pretend that you have Christian fellowship with the person. You don't give off the impression that you support or promote what they are saying. So on a local level, you don't share a meal and pretend you're all Christians. You don't support their ministry, and you don't speak out in support of them on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. On a more public or national level, you don't pretend that someone's a true Christian. You don't promote their books and their podcasts as if they are a Christian, and you speak out against their errors. That is, according to John, loving to those who need help in discerning the truth. If you don't do that, 
If you pretend that they are Christians, if you don't distinguish between the truth and error, then John says you are participating in their wickedness. If you're not willing to oppose, then you are complicit. You're guilty of their wickedness. That means we can't just go by the rule of being nice. To help or stand by silently while someone peddles lies is not loving. We are to speak the truth in love, but it has to be a biblical idea of love. Joel Beakey says it this way. He says, truth without love produces severity. Love without truth leads to false sentimentality. Walking in love must never be separated from walking in truth. When you waffle on the truth, you're guilty of promoting lies. Now, all that we've said so far puts the pressure on us to uphold the truth. And you might be overwhelmed thinking, I'm not confident in the truth. Sometimes I don't know what the truth is. Maybe you're feeling convicted about your lack of, of effort or work to know the truth of God's word. Let me now give you the medicine of God's word. Here's the good news. God's truth is a gift to us in Christ. So we must hold to it tenaciously. But we've been given God's truth. And there's three arenas in which we've been given God's truth, three ways. Number one, God has revealed his truth in his word. We can learn the truth by observing the world, but that's very limited. God reveals the truth that we could know by no other way in his word. Let me read for you how those two things go together. This is Psalm 19. I'll just read it and you can listen along. The first several verses in Psalm 19 talk about how we can learn about God through nature, through the world. Okay, listen to these verses. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The language that's used there to describe the heavens is words, voice, speech, the heavens are declaring, they're telling you something about God, but it's limited. It can tell you of God's glory, but it can't tell you of salvation in Christ. We also need God's word to understand his standard and his righteousness. And so the psalmist goes on then, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. 
even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So God has spoken in his word, and his word is true and good and beautiful and pure, and it tells us what we need to know. It reveals to us the sinfulness of our ways, but it also brings to us the announcement of what God has done in Christ to rescue us from our sins. So this psalm completes itself this way. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Well, for me to understand my errors, I need the light of God's word to shine on my heart. Declare me from innocent, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For me to understand the error of my ways and then be able to live in a pleasing way before God, I need the God, God's word to reveal to me who he is and who I am and what he has done. And so God has revealed the truth in his word. Secondly, God has revealed the truth in his son, Jesus in the incarnation, God sent Jesus into the world. Jesus comes and Jesus tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He reveals the truth to us. And he speaks the truth. And then third, God has given us the truth in his spirit that lives in us. If we are his people, John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. God gives us his word, he gives us his Son, and he gives us his Spirit who is called the Spirit of truth. And the Spirit points us to Jesus. The next chapter, John 16, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So the spirit of truth comes to us, lives in us, and he guides us into all truth. So God has revealed truth to us. His truth is a gift to us in his word. In the word made flesh, his son, Jesus, and in the spirit who points us back to Jesus and what Jesus said. Jesus is the perfect example for us of grace and truth. He offers us grace, undeserved salvation. He speaks the truth in love, you could say. But he also upheld the truth in the way that he lived, he met the demands of God's law. Now, we should seek to do both. We should seek to offer grace in our words and uphold the truth in our words and uphold the truth in our lives in the way that we live. But we will fail on both accounts. We have failed on both accounts. And that's why Jesus is necessary. The gift of God to us in Christ 
gives us what we do not have in ourselves, that grace and truth. We're called to walk in truth and walk in love and do those things hand in hand, but we fail. Jesus walked in truth. Jesus walked in love. The perfect blending of grace and truth. He upheld the law of God for us so that the standard of the law was met on our behalf. And he offers us grace, giving us his righteousness, taking our penalty on himself. The salvation that we have in Christ is the greatest gift God could give, give us. And he gives it to us in the person of his son. The claims of Christianity are objectively true and they are binding on everyone. Loving one another is not contrary to upholding God's commandments. When you waffle on the truth, you're guilty of promoting lies. Those are all high calls for us to live according to the truth. But then we land on that good news that God's truth is a gift to us in Christ. We must hold to it tenaciously. We must do everything we can to hold to the truth. But at the end of the day, it is an undeserved gift that God has given to us in his son. May we be people who walk in truth and walk in love. May we exhibit grace and truth like Jesus has. Lord, I pray that we would be people of grace and truth, that we would walk in truth and walk in love. Help us to understand how to answer the question in each situation that we face, what does it mean for me to walk in love? What does it mean to love my brother, to love my neighbor in this situation? How do I uphold the truth and do it in love? And I pray that you would give us the grace to treat each other as you have treated us and the courage to speak as Jesus spoke. We pray this in his name, amen.